Well, if you have your Bible today, if you would, please take it and turn to Romans chapter 12. We're going to be looking today at Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 5. If you don't have a Bible, then it's going to be on page 948 in the Black Pew Bible uh, that is on the end of the pew around you. And uh, as you're turning there, just say, hello. (laughs) It's great to see you guys. Happy birthday, Bill. (laughs) Yeah, we've got some Californians here today, all kinds of stuff. It's a good day. All right. Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 5, as we continue through the book of Romans, says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Mm. Beautiful. Uh, a few years ago, I, should, I, I want it to just be a few years ago. It was when I was in college, which is more than a few years ago now. Um, I was used to sleeping in a dorm, and uh, these, these little bitty dorm beds. And I'm, I'm a pretty tall guy, but I just kind of got used to that. You know, that's, that's the kind of bed that I get. And then one day, I, I went to visit some people and stayed overnight in their home, very hospitable, uh, this, this wonderful couple, and they put me on their guest bed in the basement, uh, which was a California king-size bed. And I just realized what I had been missing the whole time as a large person. But I remember one of the things that kind of struck me as I was in that experience of just being able to stretch out is that I woke up that morning and I looked all the way down at my feet. Now, my feet were not actually farther from me than they were when I was sleeping in the dorm bed. But it just struck me at that point, hey, wait a second, my toes are really far from my eyes. And it's still the case. I don't know if you've noticed. And there's some of you guys are a little taller. That's fine. But it, it kind of made me think, well, well what, what if my eyes said, well, my toes are so far away, they might as well just not be part of me. We can just go without the toes. Or what if the toes said to, to the top of my head, well, I, I'm good down here. We don't really need to interact. We've got our own little space. We're fine. I don't need you. Well, here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 14. And in fact, if you want to keep a finger in Romans 12 and turn to 1 Corinthians 12, we may be flipping back a little bit back and forth between these two passages today. It says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. 
Now, where we've been in the scriptures, we've been going all the way through Romans, we saw that there's a big kind of break at the end of Romans chapter 11, where the first 11 chapters have been giving some very, very high and lofty theological truths that in some cases are very hard to wrap our minds around and in some cases are very simple but very profound, like the heart of the gospel of faith in Jesus and his propitiation for our sins, paying the penalty for our sins. All of these great things had wrapped up in this high statement that from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. But he doesn't end it there. He goes on, and as we've come to the beginning of chapter 12, he's beginning to say, okay, now, now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and he says, I'm talking to brothers, Romans 12, verse 1, believers, this, who this is specifically geared to, as believers, I've told you what is the truth that God has done for you. I've told you what is the truth of who you are in Jesus Christ. And now, as who you are, be who you are. Live these things out, and here are some practical instructions. And Romans 12 is just very densely packed with some of those practical instructions. But he begins at the most practical aspect of it, that if you're going to be uh, in a position of being one of God's children adopted into his family and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, saved by the blood of Jesus, forgiven, justified before him, well, then we ought to consider ourselves to be gods. We ought to give our bodies as a living sacrifice, as our spiritual act of worship. And not just our bodies, but he said our minds as well, that we need to let our minds not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed through that renewal that he can give as we set our minds on him. So he wants all of us, all of who we are, body and soul, heart, mind, spirit, all of your thinking intentionally and unintentionally, all of it ought to be his. We talked about that the last couple of weeks, but some of the ways that that works out practically are in the church, and that's where he starts with this. He starts out practically saying, well, if you are going to be a person who's saved by Jesus, he's going to be giving your whole self over to the service of the Lord, Kind of the most first obvious place to start thinking about that is how do you do it in relation to the, the people that we gather together with for the purpose of worshiping him, the church. And so that's what he gets into is seeing both ourselves individually and then ourselves in relation to the others that God has gathered as believers in Christ as given over and how that's to be the case. So here's what he says to start with in verse 3. As we said earlier, For by the grace given to me, I say to you, everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment. To think with sober judgment. Now if you've got your outline on your back, we've got two points today, and that's the first one. Think of yourself with sober judgment. Now when Paul gives these instructions, he says that I'm giving these instructions, quote, by the grace given to me. So what he's not doing is he's not doing this thing where he comes up and says, look, I'm a big, important apostle. And because I'm a big, important apostle, therefore, I want to knock the rest of you down a few steps. Say, you guys over there ought not to think more highly of yourselves than you ought because look at me, I'm an apostle. No, what he says is, I'm giving you these instructions not because I have some sort of inherent place of being high up, but because God has given me grace. Grace. 
He's, he's saying right up front what he's going to make explicit later in the Scriptures is that he considers himself to be the foremost of sinners. He says this in 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. We got to remember that too. This is a great example to us when, when we see somebody in church or in our family or in our workplace or wherever it is who is behaving in a way that's prideful, and maybe they actually in some way do need to get knocked down a couple of steps in their own minds. Sometimes our temptation is to say, great, it's my place to be the one to knock them down. Well, we, we need to follow Paul's example here and say, well, these are the instructions of God, but I'm not giving them because I'm in a high up place. It's because God has been gracious to me. I am a sinner completely deserving of the eternal hell that I earned for my sins. But he, he, he died for my sins. He rose from the dead. He gave me new life, not on the basis of anything that I've done, but on the basis of what he did and who he is. And, and not only that, but Paul could say, well, he, he graciously called me to a position of leadership in the church. Not, not saying, well, it, it, he saved me by grace and then it was because I was so awesome that I got this position of leadership in the church. No, he's saying up front, every bit, 100% of what God has done in his life, every good thing, is all of grace. It's all God's riches at Christ's expense, bought by the blood of Jesus on the cross. And so he says, it's by the grace given to me that I tell you, and then here's the instruction that we need to receive from the scriptures right now. By the grace given me, I say everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Now in the context of the passage here, he's, he's speaking especially to people who possess certain spiritual gifts or certain offices within the church that would put them in prominent positions, like being at the pulpit. He says that there's a temptation when God has put you in a visible, prominent position through your gifts, through your office, to be puffed up and to say, boy, I must be in this place because I'm so awesome. Yeah, I know I don't get everything right, but I must get more right than everybody else or God wouldn't have done this for me. That's the temptation. And he says, do not think of yourself highly like that. Do not think of yourself more highly than he ought. There's also a temptation, not just for those who are in those prominent positions to be puffed up, but there's a temptation by others to envy those positions and to say, boy, I am the one who ought to be in a more prominent position. I am the one who ought to be recognized for my gifts and abilities and theological knowledge and righteousness and all of these things that you might want to say. And so really, it's not just for those who are in visible positions. It's for those who are Christians at all. There is always a temptation lurking, sometimes closer, and we feel it more, sometimes a little further away, but it's always there, a temptation to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, whether other people think of us that way or not. And he says, instead of doing that, Here's what we ought to do. In Philippians 2, 3 through 5, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility 
count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Oh, I love that. Do you think there's anybody besides Jesus who had more of a right to think highly of himself? And you know what Jesus did? He didn't do things out of rivalry. He didn't do things to come to earth and, and uh, you know, make people put him on a throne. He, he came to earth to be put on a cross to serve us. And, and this says, hey, have that same attitude among yourselves. That attitude, as he's going to say in Romans 15, that Jesus had, not to please himself, but to serve others. That's the attitude that he says. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, he says, Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Saying, whatever reason you think you have, that you're awesome. Well, even if it's something that God really did give you, he gave it to you. It's not yours because you deserve it. It's all grace. It's all a gift. Proverbs 26.12 says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Or Proverbs 16.18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Now I want to ask, in, in what ways are you tempted to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think? In what ways do you see that you are different from your fellow believers and you're glad about it? And you're tempted to say, this must be something that puts me just a notch up from him, from her. Those, those ways that you see in yourself are probably the likeliest ways that you're already sinfully prideful. I may need to repent even right now for that. But at the very least, there are ways that you're tempted to be. So what do you do? 1 Peter 5, 5 says, do this. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And again, as it said in Philippians 2, 3, count others more significant than yourselves. Here's the thing, practically, that the Bible has told us to do. If you're starting to, to think of yourself more highly than you ought, think of somebody specifically that maybe you're tempted to think a little higher up than her, a little higher up than him. And make your mind be set on this instruction in Philippians 2.3, count her more significant than yourself. Think of her as more important than you. And think, how can I serve him? How can I serve her like Jesus has served me? But he says, not just to th not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but he says to think with sober judgment. To think with sober judgment. Or to think with a wise, clear mind. To have a right understanding of what the reality is of who you are and what grace God has given you and what gifts God has given you. It says in Ephesians 4, 7, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now what it's talking about here is to think with sober judgment 
each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, there's, there's a little bit of a question. Well, what, what does that mean? Does that mean, uh, is it talking here about how strong your faith in Jesus is, your saving faith in Jesus? And I do want to assure you this, okay? You are not saved by the strength of your faith. You are saved by the strength of the Savior in whom your faith is placed, all right? If you have faith as a mustard seed, Jesus said, that moves mountains, all right? So you're not saved by the strength of your faith. If you look around and you see, boy, that other person across, uh, across from me in church has a faith that's much stronger than me, maybe I am a lost person, that, that's, not where our, that's not where our confidence is. It's, it's in the Savior, not in how much or how strong your faith is. But I think in this passage, in the context, what it's doing here, and it's not just I that think this, it's also people a lot smarter and godlier than me who think this. In the context, as he's about to go on and talk about the different kinds of gifts that God has given us to use in service to each other, seems that what he's talking about here in the measure of faith that God has assigned is something like it said in Ephesians 4-7, that grace given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift that faith in relation to what God has given us in order to be able to serve each other in the church. Now, we're going to get to that next week. What, what are spiritual gifts? How, do we, how are we supposed to see spiritual gifts in ourselves? How are we supposed to use spiritual gifts in ourselves? How are, how are we supposed to understand um, tongues and prophecy and, and those kinds of revelatory gifts that have ceased at the end of the age of the apostles, those sorts of things. We're going to get to all of those questions next time, but right now he's just saying you need to evaluate yourself realistically, properly, with sober judgment in relation to the question of how has God gifted me in order to serve others? What, what kinds of gifts has he given me? What kinds of graces has he given me? He says in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who appoints to each one individually as he wills. And how has he appointed to me? How has he willed? That's a question all of us at, ought to be asking about ourselves. Now, you may look around, you may say, boy, God has given me this amount of gifting and he's given that person that amount of gifting, that must mean that he likes that person better. Or he must mean he likes me better. Whoa, that's a more dangerous place to go even. Here's what it says in Matthew 25, 14. Jesus told this parable. He said, it's like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability, and then he went away. Now, here's the question. What if God has only given you two talents? Are you supposed to give up and not do anything because you have less than half of what the guy with five has? No, don't do that. And if you remember that parable, it was the one who had one who decided that he hated his master, and rather than obeying his commands and doing something with what he was given, he was just going to bury it and give it back, do nothing, out of fear that he'd be destroyed, well, he was destroyed because he did nothing. So don't do that. Don't say, well, I don't have what somebody else has, and so therefore my service is worthless. No, 
you have what God has apportioned to you for the glory of God and for the service of others, and especially for the service of your fellow believers in the church. So don't give up because you don't have as much as others. And you know what? There's another temptation too. What if God has given you the five talents? Are you supposed to give up because putting all of those to good use might be misunderstood as showing off? You know what that is? That's fear of man. That's saying, I'm not going to serve God with what he's given me because I fear that someone might think I'm arrogant if I do. Don't do that. If God has greatly gifted you, greatly put it to work. If God has given you gifts and graces, then use them for the glory of God and for the good of others, for the benefit of the church. Don't go into false humility. This is part of what it's saying when it says, use this sober judgment about yourself. False humility is a form of pride. Robert Haldane said that it's an affectation of humility by speaking of oneself contemptuously. It's this thing where somebody says, good job, and you say, oh, I'm nothing but a wretched sinner. Well, yeah, that's true, but you know what? They're not actually, it's not really about you. (laughs) And when you say, well, I'm just a wretched sinner, you're, you're just giving away right there. You think it's all about you. No, it's about the grace of God at work in you. That's what people are seeing and giving thanks for, is the grace of God. And we ought not to shy away from that and say, well, it's humble for me not to put the gifts and graces that God has given me to work. That is false humility. That is actually pride masquerading as humility. The warning in this verse, though, is more geared toward pride than toward self-deprecation. And so don't assume that you are the five-talent guy just because you perceive yourself to be gifted. All right? One of the things that we need is not just God's gifting, but God's grace. There are many who have made shipwreck of their faith and made shipwreck of churches because they assumed that the fact that they were gifted and talented meant that they should be in leadership, when in fact they were incredibly spiritually immature. Maybe they were hanging on to secret sins Maybe they just simply had not been in the faith long enough to understand what it means to actually love and serve God's people. All kinds of ways that this has played out. But if you run forward with your ability without first pursuing spiritual maturity, which is also a gracious gift of God, then what that's like is like handing the keys to the Ferrari to a 17-year-old. Don't do that. If you have a Ferrari, hand the keys to me, okay? But not to a 17-year-old. But guys, you know what? It is okay to take it slow until the church family that God has put you in recognizes that you are ready to fully put to use the gifts that God has given you. That's an okay thing. It's a necessary thing. Now, all this may make you wonder, when will I have the perfect balance When am I going to have the perfect balance in my heart of not thinking too highly of myself on the one hand and also not thinking too low of the graces and gifts that God has given me but having sober judgment on the other hand? Well, the answer is you'll have the perfect balance when you get to heaven. It's when you are face to face with Jesus that all the sin in your heart is going to be gone. 
And I look forward to that. I don't know about you. I hope you look forward to that too. But we have some examples in Scripture that kind of show us, hey, this is going to be something that we're going to have to keep working on until we get there, is not only not being prideful, but also recognizing God has given me these gifts. I need to use them. You remember what happened with Moses when he was first called by God to lead God's people out of Egypt. Remember his response? I'm the wrong guy. I've got, I've got a tongue like lead. I, I, I am not the one to lead this people. You know what he was doing? He wasn't thinking of himself with sober judgment. He wasn't recognizing right in front of him God had been preparing him for that moment from his birth. And God was now directly calling him to do these things. And he's saying, no, 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 no. Well, he went from that all the way to the end of his ministry, being the guy who stood up and said, you people want to challenge me? You people want to say that I'm not the right God-appointed leader for you? Well, I'm going to strike this rock that God told me to speak to. I'm going to show you which is the reason he didn't get to go into the promised land. You see that in the very same man. At one point in his life saying, no, it's not me, that false humility, and then at the end of his life, overestimating himself, striking the rock. Or even in the Apostle Paul, you know, he said, by the grace given to me, he's saying it's all of grace, he, he recognizes that he's a wretched sinner, the chief of sinners, but he also said in 2 Corinthians 12 that God had to give him a thorn in his side to keep him from becoming too conceited. You hear that? If Moses and Paul kept on struggling with these things, it's pretty normal that you and I would too, to have temptations toward pride and also temptations toward false humility but we just got to trust that there's, there is one person who got it right, and his name is Jesus. And, and every time we look at something like this, we have to realize this, this is not just a call for us to try to get it right. This is a call for us to recognize that only Jesus did, and he is our only hope in life and death. You are not going to have your sins covered by being humble. You're also not going to have your sins covered by putting to work all the gifts and talents God has given you. You're only going to have your sins covered by faith in Jesus Christ who did not account equality with God something to be taken advantage of but poured himself out becoming human so that he could go all the way to the point of death on a cross to serve you and me. Embrace that forgiveness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, here's a, just an example situation that you can, you can take and you can say, what do I do with Romans 12.3? If I just taught a Bible study, and some of you guys teach Bible studies more often than others, but I hope at least you're getting out the Bible and reading it to others in your home. What if somebody says, well, great Bible study today. Do you say, well, I had nothing to do with it. I'm just a wretched sinner. Or do you say, Thank you. I've been waiting so long for someone to recognize my abilities teaching God's word. I will take my promotion now to conference speaker. No, what do you do? Well, what you do is you recognize God's people love God's word because they love God. 
just have the right mindset. This is the grace of God. This is not about you. This is not about me. I'll just say, too, one of the little, little greatest little teachings that was left behind by, by Tim Keller before he went to heaven was this little booklet uh, called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Highly recommend it. And he basically says, you look at the Bible, it's not about high, having high self-esteem, and it's not about having low self-esteem, because both of those are self-focused. It's about getting your mind off yourself and onto the glory of God and the good of others. That's what we've got to do. That's the solution, both to pride and to false humility. Now, it's not just for Bible study teachers. It's also for musicians. It's for program leaders. It's for children's workers. It's for cooks. It's for financial managers, all kinds of stuff. And that kind of takes us to the next verse here in Romans 12, verse 4. For he says, For as in one body we have many members... And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. This is related. Remember I told you keep a finger or a bookmark in 1 Corinthians 12? Here's one of the things it says there, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. There's a reality, both in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 here, that when you come to faith in Jesus, you're not just an individual in a relationship with God. Now, if you don't have an individual, private, personal relationship with God, then you don't know him. But if you don't have a relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you also don't know him. That's what 1 John says. Whoever says, I love God and hates his brother is a liar. He has made us brothers and sisters in Christ. He's made us one body. And he says even this picture of baptism, you're baptized into one body. Well, what if you're Jewish versus Gentile? He says Jews or Greeks. Well, what if back in those old days you were a slave? Well, you're in the same body as the free people. And he says, all were made to drink of one spirit. Amazing. We have that same Holy Spirit that we possess and are dwelt by as believers and that we come and that we are made one body in Jesus Christ. He also says in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, this is great because we we had a baptism this morning, four, and we, we get to take the Lord's Supper later in the service. And he said, we're baptized into one body. And then 1 Corinthians 10, 17 because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. E- even as we uh, participate in the Lord's Supper later, that's part of the picture that God has built into it, is that, hey, we're one loaf of bread together, as we are the body of Christ and partaking in Jesus through faith. But these many members have different functions. Member, by the way, some people think that church membership is not in the Bible. It is. It's right here. He says he makes us members. But that word member, it actually means body part, All right, which sounds a little bit gross, but it's just what it is. We are body parts in the body. He's made us members, and we do not all have the same function. Again, in 1 Corinthians 12, let me just read this. The, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. He, he says, um, 
on the contrary, verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 12, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, don't say names right there, but it's true. On those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts, Bible just said some of you are unpresentable parts, <laughs> are treated with greater modesty. How about that? Which our more presentable parts do not require, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the sense of the same care for one another. That's, that's what he's getting at. He just expanded on this in 1 Corinthians. That's why I'm, I'm reading from there, but it's the same concept as here in Romans. The members do not all have the same function. But that doesn't mean we don't need each other. That doesn't mean we don't function together. So as we're considering as individuals, well, how highly should I think of myself? Or how, no, don't worry about that. Just put your gifts to work for the good of the body. Think of others. Think of yourself as somebody who is not just on your own with God, but here to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ, knowing that we're in this together. We're in this together in the sense that what hurts one is going to hurt the other. What helps one is going to help the other, just like the body parts. Not every part of the body is going to be an eye or a mouth. The body needs an eye and a mouth. It needs at least one eye. Not every part of the body is going to be a foot, but the body needs feet. Not every church member is going to be an elder or a deacon, but the church body needs elders and deacons. If you read your New Testament, you see that over and over. Not every church member is going to wash the tablecloths after Sunday school, but we need people to wash the tablecloths after, or after Sunday social. Excuse me. We need that. We're members of one another. It says in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 26 and 27, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Guys, when, when the body, when the church body is functioning properly, it functions together in harmony because the good of the whole is the good of each part. Now, if you, you just think about your own body, are you going to take your fist and punch your stomach? Of course you're not going to do that. How foolish is it that sometimes we have that temptation in our hearts to come at each other like that in the body of Christ? The belly button isn't going to jump up and rub lint into the eye. One foot is not going to intentionally trip the other one. Knock the whole body down. May happen accidentally sometimes. <laughs> the elbow is not going to come at the knee with a bunch of accusations, trying to back up those accusations with all the other body parts are saying about you, knee. Here's what it says. Here's the command instead in Ephesians 4.25. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. That's meaningful right there. He says in that same chapter in Ephesians 4, verse 16, that the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, 
It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now let me just, I'm going to, I'm going to just talk about that verse for just a second. I know I talk about this verse, I talk about that verse. I'm going to talk about that verse for a second. In Ephesians 4.16, we make the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That is the way that the Bible speaks about growing as a church. Now, there are other places that speak about how God added to the numbers of various churches at various times, but when it uses the word grow... It's not talking about drawing a crowd. When the Bible uses the word grow about a church, it's saying that the body is supposed to build itself up in love and helping one another to grow in spiritual maturity and Christ-likeness. That is actual church growth with the words of the Bible saying, here's how to grow. Serve each other in love. Build each other up in love. Help each other look more and more like Jesus. Love one another. Oh, it's beautiful. Guys, I want to invite you to, to consider yourself. Consider yourself in terms of what, how has God gifted you? How has God graced you? How has he grown you in spiritual maturity? How has he given you abilities? These are things that you can start thinking about right now. Even though next week is the week when we start talking specifically about spiritual gifts, you can wonder, how can I think of myself with sober judgment in terms of how I can build up the body of Christ in love and serve God and serve people with what he has actually given me? Now, the Bible says that we are, are jars of clay. We have this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay. And there's sometimes there's going to be a temptation to say, what a beautiful jar this must be to have the treasure of the gospel in it. That's when we need to stop thinking more highly of ourselves. And then there's other times when we start thinking, I'm just a jar of clay. That's when the time when we remember when, hey, he has given you the treasure of the gospel. Put it to work. But in all this, consider how can I serve, and especially consider how can I walk forward in the forgiveness that Jesus has given me, that he served me, that he came to forgive my sins, not just so that I could be on my own, but so that I could then serve and love others. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this scripture. We thank you for the, um, just the beautiful picture that we've already had today of people being brought into the body of Christ God, we thank you for the beautiful picture that we will have of that as we partake of the Lord's Supper later, of being one body, one loaf together. God, I thank you, though, that individually, that you've cared for each one of us. Lord, that you've given us the grace for all of us who believe. You've given us the grace of salvation. You've given us the gift of the Holy Spirit to indwell us and to sanctify us. God, you have given us various gifts according to the measure of faith, as you said in this passage. And God, I pray that you would help us to have a sober evaluation of ourselves that would overflow in love for one another as, body, as members of the body of Christ. God, I pray for those who are lost in their sins today, who have not yet received that grace of Jesus. I pray that you would show them the perfect beauty of Christ. And I pray that you would bring them in by faith, forgive their sins, and gift them in service to you and to others. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.